The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 250. One day, I shall come back. And that's it. I've been renewed. As when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Braveheart even. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding. Position Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Panel I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Should be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the 11th Doctor story, The Rings of Akitan. Joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Cory Stika. Hi, Father Cory. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Folks, a couple things I want to tell you. Remember to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on Facebook, where we're at facebook.com slash secrets of Doctor Who. And to retweet us on Twitter, where we're at SQPN. And make sure to leave us comments and feedback in those places. I want to also recommend that you check out another show on the SQPN network called American Catholic History. It's about all kinds of interesting figures from Catholic history in the United States, both famous people and people you never heard of and interesting places. Check it out. It's wherever you find fine podcasts of any stripe or at sqpn.com slash history. And finally, I want to remind you all to stick around to the end of the show. We're going to have some listener feedback on some of our recent episodes. But first, we're going to talk about the Rings of Akitan. And Jimmy, could you give us a quick recap? Before taking Prime Clara on her first TARDIS adventure, the 11th Doctor goes back to 1981 to watch her parents meet when a leaf is blown into her father's face and then her future mother saves her future father from a near-fatal traffic accident. The Doctor then checks in on her as she grows up and determines that despite the fact he's met Clara twice before and seen her die, she's a totally normal girl, which is impossible. Thus, we have the impossible girl. Afterwards, he takes her to the rings of Akhaten, or they sometimes pronounce it Akhaten, or something like that. The pronunciation <laughs> seems to change, but it's a set of asteroids orbiting a big red star. They're there at the time of a major religious festival in which a little girl has to sing a special song to a deity to keep it asleep. But it's actually time for the deity to wake up and eat the little girl's soul-slash-memories. The deity turns out to be the sun that the asteroids are orbiting, and the doctor offers his memories to the star, but it's not enough. So Clara offers the sun the leaf that she has, which represents all the days her mother didn't get to live because of her premature death. Somehow, the supposedly infinite number of things that should have been but aren't satisfies the sun. And so, Clara somehow saves everybody in a way that's even less clear than I've just described it. The <laughs> end. <laughs> that about sums it up. This is, uh, well, I mean, there's essentially two different stories here. There's a little story at the beginning, and then there's the main plot, as you, as you mentioned. And the, the main plot is very, as you often say, science fairy tale, Jimmy. Mm -hmm. It, like... They're flying through space without ships and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I ha have in my notes fairy tale at the most fairy tale for this episode. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. So yeah. there's there's that part. But there's the first part I kind of want to mention first, which is about the his the doctor investigating Clara's pa- past because which I don't think I've ever seen him do before taking someone in as a companion. I think that's a new thing. No, he's stalking her because he doesn't understand how she can have died twice and be here. Okay. Right. Uh, could it just be like like multi, like the multiple Claras could be another example of the multiple face phenomenon, a la Salamander and the Second Doctor? They haven't they haven't revealed the multiple face thing diegetically yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They that comes in with the Twelfth Doctor, where they really start talking about that on camera. And over the next few episodes, the Doctor's kind of going to run through options for what Clara could be. Is she some kind of trick? Is she something an enemy has set him up with? Which actually is true, because Missy is the woman in the shop. Right. Uh, right. But we don't learn that until the 12th Doctor's time. But could she be clones? Should, could she be robots? Could she, you know, what is she exactly? He's He's going to run through some options. And this is the first one, establishing that she is, a fact, in fact, really a girl. Mm-hmm. Was with born. a real history, yeah, yeah, yep. She's a real girl, not a wooden doll. It's been made to become to life, <laughs> like <laughs> Pinocchio. Uh, the 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 whole thing with the leaf and her dad and mom was kind of took me to Back to the Future. I mean, if you remember that whole scene, oh, where totally, yep. yeah. We oh, had yeah. to save his own dad who was peeping on the mom. <laughs> it's just <laughs> a whole awkward thing, but funny. Uh, well, except it, here, it, the it, doctor it, is peeping, and he's. He's got his copy of the 1981 Beano Summer Special, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. which is a British children's publication. Yeah. I, I get a kick out of the leaf, though, because when you first see the leaf in the book, it looks like just a regular maple leaf, which really aren't that big. But then yeah. all of a sudden, this leaf is like completely covers the guy's <laughs> eyes. So it's, it's, it's good. It's you like know. a blanket. <laughs> yeah. He must have a small head. <laughs> this leaf also has remarkable resilience and uh, flexible properties for being like 25 years old now. Uh, yeah. Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and even dead fl- falling off a tree, uh, bending so well. I-, I have lots of experience with le- uh, leaves having to uh, rake them up over the years. Uh, <laughs> they tend to be a little more brittle than that, but that's okay. We'll, yes. we'll give it. We'll give it to them for this. Uh, we also find out that Clara's mom died in March of 2005, which is eight years before this episode takes place. In fact, this episode originally dropped on the BBC on April 6, 2013. So there's mm. a, that eight-year gap. Remind me, because I, I, I have a terrible memory. Don't Once some things run through, like when it's the 12th Doctor's time, Amy has a family again, right? Like we yes, see her technically. mom? Mm-hmm. Okay. Once. Whole... We see them at the wedding, and that's it. Okay. No, I'm sorry, not Amy. Clara, I'm still stuck on uh, Oh, Amy. Clara does have a family, but it's, it, it's, I don't think we see her mom, and I, I'm not even, I don't even think we see her dad. I think we see like her grandmother and an uncle and okay. things like that. At the yeah. Christmas dinner. That's in, in one of yeah. the Christmas dinners, yeah, yeah. where okay. the doctor shows up nude and doesn't realize it. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's coming up. <laughs> but uh, okay, so the so then we have this whole thing where the doctor kind of attends the funeral for the mom and Clara sees him and will later on in this episode remember that he was there. Uh mm-hmm. you know that he was stalking her in the past. So then we come to the present and 
the doctor and Clara, the, the doctor has Clara in the TARDIS and it's that first trip thing. Like, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? And she can't decide. So she just says, take me to see something awesome, which seems to please him. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is a little unfair, bit of an unfair question, though. I mean, if you have, if you don't know all of time and space, how are you supposed to pick where to go? Right. right. Exactly. Um, so he he somehow, for some reason, chooses this particular place and time, uh, this event uh, at the uh, the uh, rings of Akhetan. Akhetan. I can never forget Ak- it. He says it Akhetan, but Akhetan. Okay. Yeah. I'll try to remember that. The, so, so the problem is in English we don't have the h sound in right. standard English, and so we represent it with kh. But the doctor is is splitting it into two separate consonants, ak hatan, mm-hmm. sort of like uh, the ancient Egyptian uh, pronunciations. No, sort of like the fake American pronunciation of ancient <laughs> Egyptian pronunciations. In, in Egyptian, they have huh, and so it would be achaten. Oh, okay. He's making it much more distinct. I see what you're saying. Well, in any case, they, they go to the place, and uh, they the doctor gives this spe- little spiel about the, uh, uh, the achaten belief about the origin of life, and, and I found it interesting that I don't know. It's not that he believes it, but he sort of respects it, or at least doesn't mock it, which sometimes yeah. the, mm-hmm. the, the modern doctors have done was mock some religions, but that's mostly about earth religions or <laughs> Christianity, let's be honest. <laughs> but in this yeah. case, he kind of takes it seriously. And this episode is kind of interesting in that regard, because for the first chunk of the episode, even though they're building some drama and stuff, for the first chunk of the episode, they're treating this religion respectfully and mm-hmm. they're even they're 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 allowing the audience to appreciate what its d- devotees appreciate about it they have this song they're singing they stage it with um i mean they build it up as like okay this is called the long song and it's a lullaby mm-hmm. that's to, been going on for this deity for millions of years one chorister passing it off to another chorister to sing and periodically they have these little girls come in who are called the Queens of Years. The current one is a little girl named Mary M E R R Y Galel. And mm-hmm. she's got stage fright, as a kid might, <laughs> or anybody might, if you're singing for a deity to keep it asleep. So they they let the song be beautiful, they let the imagery be beautiful. It's kind of slow and grand and respectful. And then it becomes Gene Roddenberry, (laughs) where God is not all that God is cracked up to be. And the doctor, I mean, not only does the first thing we think is the God that they set us up, they have something, they refer to it as a mummy. doesn't look like a mummy to me. It's got no bandages, and it's not a human. Yeah. But they have this like monster in a glass case that we at first think is the God, but then it turns out, no, that's just, he's just the wake up system for the sun. Mm-hmm. And it's the sun. That's the actual deity. And all of a sudden the doctors dissing the deity to its right. face. And it's <laughs> apparently a rather polite deity because even though it looks like a giant glowing solar jack-o'-lantern, it doesn't just burn him to death. <laughs> so <Smite> him. <laughs> it, yeah, it's actually a fairly polite deity, it seems. 
Um, but he is, uh, he's really dissing it. He's calling it a, cause it eats memories mm-hmm. right. and okay. So it's not, it's not the Christian God. It's not the ultimate God that made everything and thus doesn't need anything. This mm-hmm. is a, this is clearly a creature that needs something. It needs memories, but he he's like talking to it and calling it a parasite. And I'm going, dude, it's just a heterotroph. Come on, <laughs> you're a heterotroph too. You don't photosynthesize. You don't chemosynthesize. You eat other things. It's <laughs> in the same category as you. Right. It doesn't make it a parasite. Right. I mean, uh, that by by his category that we we would be parasites because we eat animals and plants. And yeah. Things. That's not technically what a parasite is. No. Uh, so, but yeah. nevertheless, where is this hostility towards the sun coming from? It's just a creature that needs to eat. Well, uh, because we have to have another Stephen Moffat, Time Lord, astride the universe, uh, mm. standing up, you know, as the I am the greatest thing ever sort of thing. And it it is interesting as we do these shows and I, to, to look to when we watch a second Doctor story and followed by an 11th Doctor story, and then a third Doctor story and another 11th Doctor story. To see the contrast in the way that the Doctor yeah. has been portrayed in these two different times. The, in the one we just watched with the second Doctor, he was a much smaller, nevertheless important and even heroic character. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't Time Lord Transcendent, <laughs> taking yeah. on the gods. You, you, you could well, see the 11th Doctor that if he was called to play uh, a world leader that he happens to look the same as, oh, he'd be jumping right in it. He'd immediately be, you know, let's check out the clothes. Let's do, you know. Right. It would be so bombastic. Yeah. Even the, I, I, the 12th doctor, despite the fact I, I like the 11th doctor better than the 12th doctor, the 12th doctor got it right on this one. In the first yeah. episode with Bill, mm-hmm. he points out to her that very few things in the universe are evil. They're just hungry. Right. You know, evil, evil depends on which side of the knife you're on. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> whether the fork's aimed at you or is in your hand. <laughs> That's yep. true. Uh, I do want to point out, he does say in the, you know, introducing this place to Clara that he'd been there with his granddaughter. Yes. So we have a Susan nice bit of Nice bit of fan service there. Yep. Uh, which sets Clara back, back because, of course, he looks very young. So she, I think it, she sort of wonders, well, how old is this guy really? And what, what, what kind of, you know, does he have a family and all this other stuff? Oh, That's, and she fancies him. So it's like, what? You're a grandfather? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right. We've clearly entered the uh, potential boyfriend zone. Uh, so as they walk through the marketplace, which looks like a set from Star Wars. Because I know, it's the Cantina <laughs> Marketplace. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Welcome to Mos Eisley, a wretched hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> we have lots of plastic heads on people. Uh, they the, blew a lot of money on the alien costumes for this episode because they're they're a bunch of different kinds. It's not like oh, yeah. they made one model and stamped a bunch out. There are lots of kinds of aliens here, and we get when they're singing the song, we get a big um, Colosseum scene. Yep. Yeah, and unlike the Phantom Menace, they don't use dyed Q-tip heads for the <laughs> spectators in the Colosseum. Yeah, yeah, yeah they, exactly. They, there are a lot of plastic heads, prosthetic masks there. Uh, although th- I noticed that they didn't go to a lot of effort to make them animated so that when the person inside is moving their mouth, it moves along with. Like mm-hmm. They're pretty mm-hmm. static. With, so you get a, a little well, balancing of the budget there. And then that's why they brought back the, 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 the fish race from Doctor's Daughter, because yeah. then they've got the bubble thing there that all that has to do is just sit there and bubble. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So as they're in the marketplace, uh, 
that we've learned that the items unit of currency in this place it's hard to call it a world in this place is items of sentimental value which is kind yeah of interesting. this is a great concept it's at it the doctor describes it as psychometric money mm. so psychometry is an alleged psychic ability where you can touch something or hold something and pick up information about its past and so if something is an object of sentimental value like clara at one point uses her mother's engagement ring or wedding ring yep. that she has even though her mom's passed on and that actually would now thinking from not a guy's perspective hmm. she's planning on using that ring when she gets married right right and right, and so so th- that is in uh, incredible sentimental value to her because it was her mom's and now it's going to be hers and now she's giving it up but mm-hmm. on if people in this in this asteroid have psychic powers they would sense all of that and it would make it that important to them and so it's a medium of ex- it can be a medium of exchange because it has real value like regular money does, but felt a little more personally. But it's both essentially a kind of mental value because pieces of paper are not intrinsically very valuable. Right. right. It's it's interesting that she kind of keeps turning to the doctor and goes like, you know, look, you've, you've lived for a thousand years or so. You must have sen- sentimental stuff on you. And all he's got on him for some reason at this point is the Sonic. Right. Like, but well, in every other episode, he's got pockets full of. He's got like the the never ending pockets full of stuff, and I don't well, know whether it was he was intentionally leaving the stuff behind because he knew this was a place where the currency is sentimental value. The, the, these other things may not have any sentimental value for him. The, the Sonic obviously does because he's you know he's done yeah. so much with it. But you know his his string and his yo yo and apple yeah. and whatever else or banana or whatever he might have in his pocket probably has no value to him. You know, even his clothes probably has no value to him. That's true. I mean, maybe that's what they're we're trying to they're trying to say is that the doctor doesn't is is not sentimental about things. I mean, he he's someone who yeah. sheds his face every couple of years. Uh, so maybe there's a he's not sentimental about stuff. Well, at, on occasion, he's had the TARDIS stuffed full of stuff that yeah. mm-hmm. would seem to have value to him, but he doesn't have it on him. Right. Right. By the way, the 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 time that they have uh, appeared at it's something called the Festival of Offerings, mm-hmm. and the Doctor explains it as being uh, as you know being really popular, kind of like Pancake Tuesday, <laughs> and and not everybody in America may get that reference. Yeah, so it's not normally when Americans are aware of this holiday, it's not normally called Pancake Tuesday. It's called Shrove Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And it's the day before uh, Mardi Gras. It's the day before... Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. Yeah. Oh, also, it's called Fat Tuesday. Right. But the idea is you have a big feast because now you're going to go into Lent, which is the 40 days-ish preceding... Yep the preceding the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ on the liturgical calendar where you're going to be fasting and doing penance so you have a feast to celebrate first and in some parts of the Christian world it's customary to make pancakes on mm. this Tuesday which is why mm. it's sometimes called pancake Tuesday there's right. a tradition in my house that's for sure uh-huh nice <laughs> pancakes are awesome yeah uh, it it's also traditional in other places to have meat because mm-hmm. meat is a food that 
yeah. represents right. celebration. And so it's a farewell to meet or carnevale. Mm-hmm. Right. Which Carnival. Yeah. And, to meet. yeah. and a lot of times people use the opportunity to clean out their, their pantries of all that stuff you're not going to eat, like meat and yeah. things yeah. like that. And if you go for a much stricter um, Lenten fast, it can also include like eggs and dairy and things like that. Like yep. the Orthodox great fast, which is yep. tough, tough. The good, the good thing is that the eggs will still be good when mm-hmm. the chickens keep laying them because they last <laughs> a long time if you don't mess with them. That's yep. right. Don't wash them. But that's why you then have a whole mess of eggs you need to deal with on Easter's, which led led to the Easter egg custom. That is, ah, see, I never thought of that. That is fascinating. Yes, of course, that would be why there's Easter eggs and all that deviled eggs and all that other yum. And then stuff. they then they then they Christianize it by the, the the rebirth, so to speak, of the egg. You know, being the right. new birth. But yeah, but also leads to new birth. Those prolific hens. Yeah. So. One of the things I noticed in this scene is that Clara doesn't understand the alien speech. The TARDIS is not translating for her like it has for every other person that travels on the TARDIS. And and at another point, the TARDIS won't open its door for her. So the TARDIS is kind of, doesn't kind of like, it doesn't trust Clara, I think. Well, she even says it so. When she's trying to take Mary into the TARDIS to keep her safe, and get her out of the marketplace, the TARDIS won't open. And now the doctor has not given her a key yet, it seems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it could just be that, well, I don't have the key, duh. But she interprets it as, the TARDIS doesn't seem to like me. Right. And they will play more with that. It takes the TARDIS a while to warm up to Clara because of how weird she is. And the right. TARDIS is concerned, as the doctor is, that she might be a threat of some kind. Well, and it, it's obviously playing off the doctor's... His own uncertainty about it, about her, yeah. you know, suspicions. Yep. Do, I do like when Clara is talking to Mary Galel. Yeah. And Mary is like, you seriously don't know who I am? And, <laughs> and Clara is like, I just arrived. I'm new. I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. And at one point she says, can you pretend like I'm a total space alien and explain it to me? <laughs> <laughs> right. Because from her point of view, yes, yeah, she's a space alien. Yeah. I really... I really enjoyed those uh, interactions between the little girl and Clara. And it, I mean, what we're trying to do here in the, in the script is trying to emphasize Clara's compassion, her desire to help those in need. I mean, in fact, at one point she, she's mad because the doctor's running away from the stadium thinking that walking they, away. Yeah. But thinking they're abandoning uh, Mary and Mary Galel. And in fact, he's, he says, you know, the first rule is we don't, we don't, leave we don't ever leave the needy we don't walk away yeah uh so that that's but i like that they were emphasizing that about clara now which is going to be a key element of her of her character going going on to the to when she leaves um so that's interesting it's also around this point that we learn about her mother's death uh, because Mm -hmm. it's told in flashback and and we have her clara telling the story or telling a story about her mother to Mary Glell, saying, you know, my biggest fear, because Mary's biggest fear is stage fright. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Her fear was being lost, because there was a time she got lost, she says, among about 10 billion people, and then her mom came and found her. And then we have this scene of her in bed, and her mom is telling her, don't ever be afraid of being lost, I will always come find you, and so forth. And so we have another mother love theme here, mm-hmm. but this time I thought it played fairly well. Yeah. It, it, it yeah. wasn't as hackneyed as Bill's mother love stuff. Mm. 
and I thought it I thought it worked better this time. Yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of reminded me of Liam Neeson and Taken, I will always come for you, which is not his <laughs> accent. I don't know what I was doing there, but haven't, was, haven't was, seen that one. So I'll uh, let that pass. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to do the Irish accent that just came out wrong. But talk, anyway. talk, talk, talking about uh, references to other media. Uh-huh. So so if people haven't seen it, they really should. There is a acapella John Williams YouTube tribute. Oh, that's on yes. that's on that's on on YouTube, and what it is is it's it was originally an acapella group named Moose Butter that mm-hmm. took different songs from John Williams. So you have the Indiana Jones theme, the Star Wars theme, um, actually several different Star Wars themes, the Superman theme, and they set they themed them with Star Wars lyrics and then sang them. And then another guy who's actually Another guy made a video to it where he split screen lip syncs it, and mm. his and they 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 later did that too. But actually, it's this other guy who has the better video because they mug too much. Ah. The mm. moose butter mugs too much for the camera, and the other guy is much more clean in his visual delivery. But in the middle of that, they they have uh, the Jaws theme, which mm-hmm. is by John Williams. And they segue into the Jurassic Park theme, and in the Jaws theme, it's it's the lyrics have been written around Princess Leia's escape from the Death Star, <laughs> and um and and so that's the setup. Now here's the connection to this episode of Doctor Who. At one point, when the God is starting to wake up, the chorister is trying to put it back to sleep. And he's altered the lullaby, so he's going, Old God, do not wake from slumber. Old God, do not wake from slumber. And yeah. and that is like exactly the right rhythm for the moose butter, John Williams is the man tribute <laughs> to the Jaws theme as, Someone move this walking carpet. Someone move this walking carpet. Luke, I'm your father. It is useless to resist. Come with me, my son. We will rule. Search your feelings. It is true. So you have a twin sister who Obi-Wan was wise to hide. If you will not turn, then perhaps she will give in to your hate. You are mine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> very good so that's what was going through my yeah. mind when they got yeah. to that point yeah. i think that 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 little bit that at first is uh williams cribbing from something else and i'm kind of trying to he's i mean he's great for pulling from the great masters that precede him and incorporating some of their oh, yeah. themes and some of their bits into it and i'm trying to remember what I just heard it the other day. In fact, the 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 piece that he might have got it from, I don't know, Vivaldi or no, it wasn't the Jaws what? theme or the yeah or that, the... that Jaws theme bit that uh, uh, you must go back to sleep. You know that dun dun uh-huh. dun, dun 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 like that bit there. Um, so, and uh, speaking of that, I like the concept of a religion where they must the the singing must never end. The singing must mm-hmm. continue. Continuous uh, worship. Well, we have that. Yeah. In heaven, in Christianity, I mean, the if you look in the book of Revelation, the heavenly chorus is forever singing to God, mm-hmm. but because he's awesome, not because he needs it. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. right, right. Yeah, and, and we, we, we don't have, and we have a, 
we have a sense even you know even now of course the idea i believe it was augustine that said you know when you you sing you pray, you pray twice you know right. when you sing to god you're praying twice both in the song and in the words of the song and in a way, like we we talk often in the Catholic Church about how the mass is celebrated around the world constantly. At any one moment, there is a mass going on somewhere in the world, which is a way you know many, uh, yes, yep. many masses. Um, and the same thing with the liturgy of the hours, you know that sort of thing. So it is a continuous singing. So I kind of like this idea though that the it the song has been passed from chorister to chorister through the the mm-hmm. millennia. I, it's the whole like for millions of years. Why can't it just be thousands? Like oh, mil- I don't. I'll give them millions in this case. At least they didn't do <laughs> yeah. billions. That's true. Since the beginning <laughs> of time. Uh, yeah. So the other thing that I thought was um, interesting, or but although a little confusing, because I feel I felt like they wanted to have that that twist was the whole mummy is a vampire thing, and I'm trying to think of like why, <laughs> like why does that thing exist as part of like like. I get it. Why is this in the story? But in the logic of the world, which there isn't a whole lot of, how would that have happened? You know what I mean? Like, why would you have set it up for well, this thing to wake up? So I would assume that this is like the this is like that the mummy monster thing is like the high former high priest of the sun or something. Yeah, and that its role evolved over the course of time and to, to being it's it's the thing its job is to like wake up the sun when it's time mm-hmm. for the sun to feed or something right. yeah that's true um yeah i guess so it, it was it was i remember what when i first watched it, it was a little confusing the the, the mm. transition from one to the next was kind of quick and i'm like what what, what happened but yeah, well, they just cover it in a line of dialogue the doctor says i think i made a tactical boo boo actually <laughs> Actually, a a bit of a semantic mix-up. Uh, grandfather right. wasn't the god; he's the alarm clock for the god. Yep. Right, right. It, an interesting aspect I mentioned before: how the doctor faces down the old god and does the time lord astride the universe thing again. Oh, but yeah, B- but in my notes, big messy ambiguous speech. Yep. <laughs> right. But the interesting thing here is that the doctor's vast memories do not satiate the beast, as you mentioned. It's Clara. Who is the who solves it? She gives it the most important leaf in history, quote unquote. Um, mm. And she, right off the bat, Clara is already saving everything, being the doctor, the doctor companion, which is an interesting. Well, she has saved him forward. before, right? Yeah. Right. And, and it's it's an interesting clue, I think, that Moffat's putting into the the, the story now, which is, you know, the Clara is. The one who saves the doctor. She's going to consistently be saving the doctor until Trenzalore and all that. So that's kind of an interesting part. Of the, that. The, the only thing I hate about the whole Clara, not not so much Clara herself saving, but that the, the whole thing with the leaf of he's she satiates the the star god by all the infinite possibilities that could have happened if her mother had still lived. Well, that's about everything, isn't it? I mean, is <laughs> right anything that anybody has ever owned that died yeah. young. This, That's this anything is, would be that. I, I totally agree with Father Corey. This is one of the things that really bugged me. It's like, okay, her mom died, if you look on the tombstone, at age 45. So mm-hmm. her mom had given 21st century medicine maybe another 50 years. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's not infinite possibilities. Yeah. All of the things that should have been, you're talking another 50 years. 
And as someone whose mom died prematurely, based on her family history, my mom died 40 years before she should have, based Mm -hmm. on how old the other women in her family lived to be. And so i very sensitive to a premature death and the, the heartache and like this should not have been aspect of it, but it's not infinite. Right. And also it, you could think about anything and think about what could have been, if that's enough that God can just write its own fanfic and be, be full forever. Yeah. Right. Why doesn't everything that people that all the people offer up as offerings become, you know, the the potential, the future, the the possibilities, and it's infinite and goes on forever? And why couldn't anything have satisfied him? Why did it have to be this leaf? And that's the, I don't know. That was the the tricky part of that. So, and and um, I wonder too if if some of this is again pointing to you know what Clara is going to become here by the end of the season, right? Where, where she splits herself through history, and I wonder if it's it's just a kind of a little pointer at that as well. That she's the the thing that satiates him. Maybe, her possibilities. maybe, but don't give don't give Moffat too much credit for this episode. This is written by someone else, which right, means right. that it was pitched, and the core of the story came from someone else. Even if Moffat lightly themed it with stuff like the leaf sure. and the scene at the end where the Doctor is kind of glowering at Clara because he's still behind her back because he still doesn't trust her. Right. Yeah. Right. So the only uh, thing I I had left on this uh, note that I had was that uh, so they don't have a son anymore in Akatan Akat. Oh my. Oh, so okay. So this is (laughs) Akatan. Thank you. Three syllables. Um, (laughs) So don't worry. You have to won't have to say it much longer. Thank you. (laughs) So I have in my notes what just happened here. Star explodes. (laughs) Because that's what it looked like, or star implodes, because that's what it looks like. Clara gives it the leaf, its face looks like it just tasted alum or something, you know, it Mm -hmm. kind of shrivels up. And then it looks like the whole, we have this swooping motion in from the outsides of the visual screen towards the center, and everything goes dark. And it looks like, did the star just implode? I mean, what Mm -hmm. happened here? They don't tell us. Because the next thing we see is the doctor is the TARDIS materializing back in 21st century Britain. And the doctor gives Clara her mother's engagement or wedding ring, whatever it is, back and says, everybody wanted you to have it. Everybody you saved, you alone. And so like, okay, he's making it clear that she was the one that really saved them. It wasn't the doctor's memories. Fine. But what happened? What was that visual effect we saw? Right. You know, that doesn't make any sense. It looks like the star imploded and everyone would have died, but that's apparently not what happened. Or not yet, anyway. <laughs> that's a that's yeah. pretty bleak ending, if that's how it ended. Yeah. Uh, that was that was a weird thread. Yeah. Anyway, that's all I have. Uh, Father Corey, do you have any other notes on this? When they were flying that moped, quote-unquote, through the stars, all I could think of was Flash Gordon, the movie Flash Gordon, yeah. where they're flying between the planets, on a, basically on mopeds. Yeah. Um, and, it's, and, of course, it's the same kind of thing where, Jimmy, you hinted at it, where there was, they were able to breathe. There was, it was not the vacuum of space, and yet they were flying between these asteroids without any kind of space helmet or anything like that. Yeah, I, I I I I didn't fault them for that. They've established that like the TARDIS has a force field around it with an air bubble, and they don't need to say that every time for me. So I assumed that the moped had something similar. We should clarify for the listener: it doesn't look like an actual moped. They call no, it no. that, 
but it really looks kind of like some kind of Star Warsy land speeder thing. Yeah. 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 Kind of- it looks like the land speeder, or again with Flash Gordon, the the the, the cycles that they were riding. They're very or similar bike. appearance. Yeah. Or spe- yeah. yeah. Uh, Jimmy, any last notes? Nope. Okay. Well, we'll cap the discussion of the Rings of Akhatan uh, off there. I think I got it right. And probably not. So let's move on to our feedback so I don't have to say it again. Uh, we have some feedback on our recent episode 244 on The Angels Take Manhattan. We got both bits of feedback via our Facebook page. The first one comes from Nicholas, who says, I'd like to see Idris Elba cast as the next Doctor. He's a great actor, and I think he could do quirky, but he could also bring a more f- imposing physical presence to the Doctor. He can be charming and not simply irascible, but menacing. That'd be an interesting characterization. Uh, and, uh, mm-hmm. He's got another comment, but I w- I'd like to kind of address that first point, which is I've always said I like uh, Idris Elba. I've I've thought I've thought of him as he'd be the great uh, next James Bond if they were going to do that. Mm-hmm. But uh, he's a great actor. But uh, what do you guys think of Idris Elba as the next Doctor? I'd love to see him do it. And same thing, you know, I, everything I've ever seen him in has just been incredible. But he's got such star power now. Do you honestly think that he would come back <laughs> down to Doctor Who? Right, right. Yeah, uh, it's it's. I guess it's unlikely. It's not as big of a role as, say, James Bond would be. What do you think, Jimmy, of Idris Elba? I haven't seen enough of Idris Elba to really say I mean, I'm aware of who he is, but I just haven't seen a lot of his performances. If we're talking um, other male actors, I, I thought Richard Ayoade would mm-hmm. be uh, would be good as the Doctor, and I like rather than people who are more famous for being because I don't like it when the Doctor gets too full of himself. Right. I I I would like to see actors who could be who are primarily not in intimidation mode, who are primarily something else, something humble mm-hmm. and friendly, who then mm-hmm. may go into intimidation mode. Another that, um, oh, and I'm blanking on his name now, uh, Sasha Dewan. Right. He would have mm-hmm. made a great doctor too. He makes a great master. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I like the people who can come off as, who kind of have as their, resting nice face (laughs) (laughs) but but then can flip when the situation calls for it right no no attack eyebrows (laughs) (laughs) well i mean it's it's not that scottish all the scottish actors have to be intimidating and like you know you get david Tennant. he he did it well uh, although he didn't have a scottish accent uh but uh, (laughs) that's funny so he uh Nicholas also says also I'm glad that Jimmy has found some works of Dame Christie that he likes. It's true that a lot of her work is gimmicky, but she's written so much that it's also easy to find things that are less so. Yeah, he's referring to Agatha Christie there and uh recently I who is of course a dame in yeah. more than one sense. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but since it's a title of nobility in England. Yes. But I I recently watched some. We're talking. I think you may not have been here for this episode, Father Corey. But I wasn't. No, I missed that one. I was talking about some movies that I had recently watched, and a, and a, a, the play, The Mousetrap, that mm. I read from Agatha Christie, and I did enjoy The Mousetrap. I mentioned in that episode mentally casting it with characters with actors from Doctor Who, mm, um, right. which made it very interesting. Yeah, but I I. Still haven't 
I haven't fully investigated her oeuvre, but I have been venturing out upon the Agatha Christie Bay a little bit. Like in that <laughs> nice. movie, Evil Under the Sun, I just watched, which, yeah, also was really gimmicky, but had some interesting stuff in it. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Nicholas. Uh, we also have some feedback from Jonathan on Facebook. He says, this was a good episode. But I did have a thought that's always bothered me about it. I was hoping toward the end you would address the fact that the Doctor could have gone back to another point in Amy and Rory's lives to see them. I know there was a line about the TARDIS couldn't go back to 1938, but could it also not go back to 1940, 45? Was somehow the entire lives of Amy and Rory part of the disruption that prevented traveling to any part of their lives? For me, this really spoiled the ending of the show because I couldn't square why the Doctor couldn't just go back and see them a few years after they arrived in the past. And then says, thanks for all the work you do to put into the podcast. So I think we've talked a little bit about fixed points in time in the past mm -hmm. and the disruption in the timeline, right? Yeah, it's not just that New York is fixed. It involves a fixed point. It does involve a fixed point, but that, that Amy created, right. or Amy and Rory created. But it also is incredibly fractured due to all of the activity of the Weeping Angels in that one mm. spot. And it's because of how fractured it is, he can't just fly the TARDIS in there anymore. And so, no, apparently he wouldn't be able to go back to 1940 in New York. Where he could go would be back to 2008 and, right. and mm -hmm. meet Amy and Rory as a slightly older doctor which is exactly what he does in the last season, where he shows up 200 years older in The Impossible Astronaut. Right. And so he could see them again by going to meet them before their trip to New York. But whether or not he would do that might potentially upset things or mm -hmm. undo a fixed point, and maybe that's why he doesn't do it. Could he not go to, say, Chicago in 1938? <laughs> Well, so, a train. No. so yeah, so he could do that, but yeah. that's not how the doctor rolls. Yes. He wants to nope. step off the TARDIS and be within walking distance of where, whoever he wants to visit. This right. is the dramatic problem of having a space and time machine is you can undo all of the drama of every, every single episode if you think yep. hard enough about it. So you kind of have to put it on a, on a shelf and say, we just we just can't. Otherwise, there's no point to having the show. <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah i mean it is that's kind of bug you that you know you have to leave them it, like this it, it, and this is sometimes a criticism that's made of time travel fiction in general that you can you can undo anything and it sucks the drama out i don't actually think that's the case uh, which is the reason we have lots of time travel fiction is mm -hmm. because it does work people enjoy it i think that in order to that it's a writing problem if you've made time travel so easy and so rule free right. that you can that you get into these situations. But if you establish laws for how time travel work that make it costly and or even impossible to do certain things, and you're clear about those rules from the outset, then you you don't lose this. Like, for example, if you had a rule that like time travel is quantum so you can you you must travel with no less than 24 hours let's say mm -hmm. into the past or future it's in 24 hour units you always show up at the same time let's say it's 1201 whatever day mm -hmm. in the world you tra world's history you travel to you're showing up at 1201 
Okay, right, right. that makes it impossible to go back five seconds and pull Adric off the ship. Right, right, right. You know, you're going to have to go back at 1201. You're going to have to find him again. You're going to have to radically alter the course of events. It's not as simple as, oh, let's just materialize the TARDIS around someone and pluck them out of the time stream. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, and there, I've seen other time stories where you only can go back to a, a specific length of time in the past. Right. The past is always moving forward. You can't go back to before you went and that sort of thing. Yeah, you're right. There are ways to design tri- time travel stories. The problem being that when they started Doctor Who in 1963, they, they, no one thought of this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. They weren't planning for a multi-decade franchise. It was just a simple children's show that they didn't know if it would go on past the first 12 episodes. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. right. Also, incidentally, some actual uh, designs for time machines that physicists really work on. They just call them researching closed time-like curves mm-hmm. because if they say time machine, they won't get funding. <laughs> <laughs> but some actual designs for time machines allow you to travel to the past, but not before the time machine itself was built. Right. Mm. Interesting. So, so if we build a time machine in, in 2030, you can go back to 2030, but not 2020. Interesting. Which is why we don't have any time travelers uh, around. Yeah, but it's because of the way the machine is designed, not because of some kind of chronology protection principle. Oh, I see. Uh, It's not not to explain the temporal Fermi paradox. Right. Right. (laughs) Uh, Which is a whole other discussion, which would be very interesting. But uh, that's for a different show. So uh, thank you, Jonathan and Nicholas, for your feedback. We really do appreciate it. And that always helps us have some more good conversation. So I do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Barbara L., Irving N., Jacob J., Jacqueline B., and Kathy N. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What do you think of the Rings of Akhatan, the this 11th Doctor story? Let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the third Doctor story, Day of the Daleks. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the Secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Someone move this walking carpet. Someone move this walking carpet. (laughs) Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, you are unique in the universe. Right. This is going to be fun. And I never have to say the rings of Akhetan again.